Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and this is the 20th Century Movie Club, Volume 24. And I am joined, as always, by my regular co-host, Michael Scott. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well, man. How are you? I'm doing good, man. Good to talk with you. It's been a little bit. Been a, been a bit. Been a bit, and the last time we talked was about Star Wars, and it was not, not a pleasant conversation, <laughs> no. so I'm looking forward to this. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. I'll save my comments for, for Star Wars for another time when we talk here, because I have subsequently seen the movie two more times, just because I like to torture myself. Uh, we do have a special guest joining us for Volume 24. If you would please introduce yourself. Absolutely. So, my name is Ale Gonzalez. I am otherwise known as the Blur Bitch, or sick underscore underscore six six on Twitter. I'm also the co-host of Sequels, which is my podcast where we cover direct-to-video sequels. It's fun over there because obviously not many are that great, but we try to find positives in every single movie we watch. And I'm also a contributor on Talk Film Society. I have a column where I talk about queerness in the vampire genre and something I'm very passionate about, of course, and definitely go check that out. But yeah, that's me. Awesome. We're super happy to have you on the show. I know that... Thank you. Having me on. Of course, we've had, you know, we've had, uh, you know, correspondence over the past couple of years. You've been really supportive of the show, and it just made sense to have you come on the 20th Century Movie Club. So, so thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so stoked. Outstanding. Okay, so when we have a special guest, we always want to introduce a theme for the 20th Century Movie Club. And if you're a first-time listener to the 20th Century Movie Club, what we do is we recommend movies that were released before the year 2000. So, Ali, do you want to tell people what theme you came up with? Yes. So... Horror is kind of the thing I'm the most passionate about, like, on this planet. And obviously, in recent discourse, we've had a lot of conversation surrounding what makes a horror movie, and I hate this phrase, and I'm sure everyone listening to this will cringe when I say it, but elevated. And so I know for a fact horror has always been elevated and always had social commentary to make, and I kind of wanted to make that the theme of the show, highlighting some of the more, a little bit older movies that are elevated as well even though i don't want to use that word what do you guys suggest we say <laughs> in place of that because i don't want to like add fire to or add fuel to the fire of the word elevated mike i would i would just say as a disclaimer everybody whenever you hear us say the word elevated know that we're <laughs> making air quotes as yes. we say it there's just throughout the entire episode anytime we say elevated there's air quotes <laughs> around it because yeah that, that's not a term that you know, I think any of us really like. But when uh, Ali suggested this, I was like, okay, I get, I get exactly why we want to do it for a theme because that's what makes it such a dumb phrase. Is horror has always been elevated. It's always been good. You know, what we're talking about is just good movies. Exactly. Or I'm gonna go ahead and say, consider to be good by the general public because I think all horror is good. I think, I mean, horror is good even if it's terrible. And I'm like a diehard. Like, I will die on that hill. So I'm going to say, by, considered by others to be good. Perfect. I love it. So, <laughs> I mean, no time like the present. What is your first pick for Volume 24 of the 20th so, Century Movie Club? My first pick is a movie that I have recently revisited a bunch because with Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood coming out recently, I've been really trying to research Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. So I chose Rosemary's Baby as my first pick. I don't think you guys have covered that yet. No, no, no. What Now, what is it about that film that stands out for you? Okay, well, obviously, we know Polanski as being one of the most, like, well-known <laughs> directors of the 60s slash 70s with Chinatown and stuff. So 
that alone was a reason but also i wanted to talk about how this film has so much to say about feminism which is kind of ironic but about feminism and kind of a woman's like literal nightmare being manifested into a reality and that is so ahead of its time i well not really because you know the 60s and the 70s were definitely a time for women's rights and you know the, the liberated movement but I think it says a lot about something that is really, you know, important to me and important to a lot of people. And I think that's why it was so successful and it does it well. And on top of that, it's also technically incredible. It's got one of the best scores I've ever heard. I think it's universally understood to be one of the best horror movies of all time. So it's a little bit of a basic answer, nope. but also how could we leave it off the list? Yeah, no, it's it, it's interesting. As a matter of fact, I'm actually somewhat surprised that through uh, 23 episodes, that one hasn't come up because it is considered by many to be just an incredible film. Um, when it, you it's me the list of movies, I was like, oh, I really want to talk about this, but it was probably already talked about. But let me just double check. And I was pleasantly surprised, to say the least, when I saw nobody had talked about it. But I was kind of like concerned <laughs> I was like, why has this movie not been talked about yet? I will go on record as saying that I have not seen this movie in 20 years. It was definitely about 19, uh, probably 99, 2000 when I saw this for the first time, as a matter of fact. It's one I certainly want to revisit sooner than later. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's, you know how certain movies will just kind of fall off your, your, your constant radar and you have to kind of be reminded about them. Like, oh yes, that's an incredible film. I haven't thought about that in a long time. I need to rewatch it. So Mike, what are your thoughts on the film? I mean, it's, it's a classic for a reason, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's an amazing film. You know, for me, uh, just to get it out there, the Polanski factor is kind of a big thing for me that, that sort of affects my ability to enjoy right. the movie. Uh, but what I will say is, is it is, it is phenomenal and Mia Farrow gives if people haven't seen this movie as much as it, and if it, I know there's probably some people who the Polanski thing is going to be a big hurdle to get over but Mia Farrow is so good in this movie and and if you're kind of got a problem with Polanski well you should watch this movie just to support her and see how mm -hmm. fucking phenomenal she is in this movie I mean she just destroys the screen in this movie you know I, I think you're right there's a lot of really interesting themes and, and subtext going on in this movie, but what I always take away from it is just her standing tall above everything else in the movie. She's so good in it. Yeah, I think that, you know, what it has to say is so important to me, and it was always important to me even before I knew about Polanski as a person, because I think I saw this like my freshman year of college the first time, and then it was the film that introduced me to him. So after doing research, I was like, oh, this is a bummer, but I knew the movie before I knew him, and it's really hard for me to, like, not love it because of that. You know, it's it's interesting because we have on this show before, Mike and I, and um, I think Ashley was on the show at one point discussing as well. You know, we've had those conversations about how do you separate the art from the artist? Because there's been other, you know, movies that have come out that have had less than desirable people involved in them, you know, and it's it's it's, it's a really, there's no, there, it's a very gray area. It's very challenging to make that decision of like, well, can I support this film? Because the person behind it just turned out to be a deplorable person. It's a complicated subject and one that I don't think we dive too deep into on this show, but it's one that certainly has to be acknowledged. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, and that's usually all I try and do uh, is uh, is just like acknowledge it because l Lord knows I like enough problematic shit to fill up an entire football stadium. So like for me, it's it's like 
but I, I do think it's important to acknowledge it. But the other thing that I always try and remind myself is that Polanski was just one person on this movie, or, or Kevin Spacey's right. just one person in a movie, and hundreds of other people worked on the movie, and they didn't do the things that make this problematic. And so it's not fair to not support them. Uh, I just think you're right, Dan. I think, you know, this has actually came up kind of this week for me because uh, Underwater has just come out and it's a movie that a lot of people love. Ali, I know you loved it. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> and, and I got a little persnickety on Twitter a few days ago because a lot of people were talking about it, but nobody was actually mentioning that T.J. Miller was in it. And it just kind of bugged me uh, because I think people... <laughs> can love the movie, but like acknowledge that there's problems. And this is a perfect example of that. Love this movie. Polanski made great movies. Chinatown's one of my all-time favorite movies, uh, you know. And so I love that you recommended this, Ali. I think this is a perfect recommendation. Thank you. And again, like I think it's just important to kind of understand, like watch it with the context of who made it, but don't judge it based on that context. Like I said, I watch this and I'm like, damn, this is such a good movie and I love it so much. But it is really ironic that like someone like him made something so powerful for women. It was it was interesting for me to discover the things he he did after having seen this, because I could have sworn the person who made this would have been like a perfect angel. And I think some of that might also be Ira Levin, because, you know, Ira Levin, who, who wrote the original book. Right. He is very much in that, you know, Stepford Wives has a lot of the same themes he wrote. He wrote. And so, you know, I think it's a perfect storm of of people who really were interested in these kinds of themes and these topics. Yes, absolutely. All right. So, Mike, what do you have for your first pick? So I uh, I went kind of way back. I set the way back machine uh, for this one to <laughs> 1957, because when you mentioned what the theme was going to be. The first sort of filmmaker that I thought of as elevated horror, I'm actually making air quotes as I say it here, folks, <laughs> I, I promise you. But uh, the first filmmaker I sort of thought of was uh, the director Jacques Tonnerre, who, for those who don't know, directed Cat People and, and quite a quite a litany of phenomenal movies because his movies were, again, all about social themes as well as relying on sort of mood and atmosphere. And so the first movie I want to talk about is uh, his 1957 film Night of the Demon. Uh, mm-hmm. Have either of you seen Night of the Demon? I have not. No, I have not, but I know Kate Bush references it in her song. <laughs> Kate Bush does reference it. She loves it. So basically, Night of the Demon is about a a psychologist who arrives in England, uh, played by Dana Andrews, to investigate or to go to a convention with a, another colleague. But he finds out that this colleague has subsequently died. And the colleague was investigating a rival who claims to sort of have satanic powers. And I don't want to get into much more than that, other than this is a textbook Tenere film. He he is basically Ari Aster before Ari Aster was around. <laughs> um, and so he relies a lot on deep, dark shadows and mood and, and tone to tell his stories because he was one of the firm believers in what we don't see is far more terrifying than what we do see. And in fact, this is a movie that he actually uh, had serious problems with because after he made it, the producers came in and added two bookend scenes where they actually show the demon. Um, and that really made him mad. Now, it's funny because on the flip side, the prop work for the demon is just baller. Like, this is one of the coolest demons that has ever been in film. And the fact that it was in 1957 is crazy. But I can understand why 
De Niro would be upset. But this to me is <laughs> is exactly what we're talking about when we're kind of mentioning what we consider to be elevated horror. This is there is a DNA line straight from this movie all the way to Hereditary that I think you can just easily trace. So I recommend both of you check it out. Awesome. Huh. Yeah, no, this one that's interesting. And I'm I'm thinking about what you said about how they bookended it. That's got to be really fascinating because I wonder what the film was like before it was book. I mean, just I'm just rambling right now, but that's just goes to show that you got to have final cut in your movie, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, very few people in the 50s had Final Cut, especially, you know, sort of B-movie exploitation directors like Tenur. You know, no matter how great his movies were considered are considered today. And and I'm going to do a secondary shout out for the original Cat people. Everybody should check that one out as well. You know, he was a B-movie director. He made horror films in the 40s and 50s. So it's not like they got really well, you know, treated very well. Is this, um, I know Rosemary's Baby was an incredibly successful film. Was this a a successful film to the best of your knowledge? Not really, especially because it it got released uh here so it was a it was a uk film but it got released in the u.s as uh curse of the demon in a severely truncated uh form they cut about 15 minutes out of the movie and uh and it found life sort of in the four wall drive-in exploitation circuit but it wasn't you know exactly a a crossover smash or anything like that in fact it wasn't really until sort of the mid 90s when uh we started getting you know collector's edition laser discs and stuff like that that people put both versions together and we got you know kind of fancy versions to really appreciate this one it was sort of considered one of the lesser toner films until you know about 20 years ago. Uh, Indicator just released last year a a wonderful uh, Blu-ray of it. It's UK, unfortunately, so you need all region for it, but it's a it's a fantastic Blu-ray of the film. Awesome. I'm literally going to watch it tonight because you really sold it. There you go. And that's what we try to do on this show, just so you, so it's perfect. You know what? <laughs> Outstanding. So, so Allie, what do you have for your second pick of the show? Okay. The second pick of the show is the movie that is the first movie I should say, that really brought this kind of discrimination of the horror genre to my attention. And I think it's the most well-known of the sort. So I'm picking Silence of the Lambs because the conversation about whether this movie is horror or if it's a thriller or a criminal movie, like that comes up all the time. I got into a huge fight (laughs) with everybody in my film philosophy class last semester about this because everyone argued that it was thriller and of course we know that the reason that things get pegged to something else besides what they are is because nobody wants to accept that the genre has a lot to offer so science of the lambs is a perfect movie despite whatever genre people want to you know claim that it is i think we all know that the score is beautiful the cinematography is beautiful it looks great the acting is beautiful i mean like anthony hopkins is viscerally terrifying in this movie and again I can't believe, like, a movie has to be an instant classic if people are still having discussions about it today, especially in regards to what we just mentioned about how nobody wants to call it what it is. But I mean, it's about a man who wears women's skin. Like, that's pretty fucking terrifying, right? So that's my pick. I love it. I love it so much. The Criterion is like one of my favorite releases that they've done ever. And 
I don't know anyone who hasn't seen it yet, but if you haven't, I definitely recommend it. It is a, um, it was a terribly traumatic movie for me to watch. It came out in 91 and I was 13 at the time. And I probably saw it on home video the year later because back then when a movie was in theaters, it took almost a year before it would come to home video. Oh my gosh. And, but but so, so 13 or 14 years old, I was still severely traumatized by this film and it scared the shit out of me. A couple interesting things about Sounds of the Lambs is it wasn't the first on-screen introduction of Hannibal Lecter. That actually happened in Michael Mann's Manhunter, which came out. So good. So yeah, another excellent movie. And Silence of the Lambs holds the distinction of being one of only three movies in history to win the big five Academy Awards. That's Best Picture, (sighs) Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay. That previously happened with One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975, and it happened one night in, I believe, 1934. So that's only happened three times, and it hasn't happened since. So, I mean, this was, when you say this was a a really well-received film, I mean, it was a very well-received film. And I think the discussion about whether it's a horror thriller is apropos and and a good one and i think a healthy debate so mike i'll turn it over to you yeah i mean it's it's you know well known that we love we stand jonathan demi around these 20th century movie (laughs) club parts so no i love this movie this movie's perfect if there's two words that i wish i could pop out of make disappear out of the sort of film lexicon it's psychological thriller because i really i really think that that is just such a cop out to not say that it's a horror movie this is in my opinion dana you said it's a healthy debate i don't actually really feel like it's much of a debate i if this isn't a horror movie i'm not sure i know what a horror movie is uh because this is scary it's tense we we even have essentially a slasher in buffalo bill as the bad guy you know Mm -hmm. so it's just it's a horror movie made by Jonathan Demi. So, of course, it's going to be better than a horror movie made by Steve Miner. Even though I agree with you, Allie, that all horror is good. I love <laughs> Steve Miner, but I don't think it's too difficult to say that Jonathan Demi is in a different class of director. And so what we have is one of the best horror movies ever made. But I still think it's solidly a horror movie. This was actually my alternate pick. Uh, so I'm glad you recommended it because Yay. this was going to be my backup pick. And actually, Manhunter was my number five if I had to go too <laughs> deep. So um, because I think I think both of them work perfectly as as horror movies, horror but movies. they work as procedurals and, and all that other stuff, too. But they're horror through and through. Uh, I love this pick. Great recommendation. I think also, like, I've noticed, and I hate this, I should have picked different movies, only because most of mine are horror movies made by non-horror directors. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, they're known for being very diverse in the content that they provide, but I still want to, like, make it a point that that's because horror is a great genre that anyone can do well. Well, not well. But most people want to touch that genre because it has a lot to offer. And also, I was thinking about this just now when you mentioned Manhunter, because a lot of people would argue that if Manhunter and Silence of the Lambs are both about, you know, lecture and about generally the same thing, why then does Silence of the Lambs bring up this debate more often than Manhunter? And I think I tweeted about this, but like, I think a lot of what makes horror what it is, it's like the atmosphere of the film and Manhunter is terrifying to me, but it's so, like, it reminds me of Miami and, like, the vibes are very, I don't know, they're not as, like, somber and kind of eerie as in Silence of the Lambs. And I think that's why Silence of the Lambs 
Like, I just, I can't even, like, fathom not calling it a horror movie. It's terrifying. One of the things that often comes up on the show when we, we, when someone recommends an incredibly iconic film, which no, no debate, this is an incredibly iconic film. It's, it's in the forever film lexicon. Uh, I always want to ask real briefly your thoughts on the follow-up subsequent, you know, the subsequent sequels that <laughs> followed. So, so Ali, I'll turn it over to you for brief thoughts on Hannibal and then Red Dragon. And then just for fun, we can throw in Hannibal Rising. Would we call it like a horror trilogy <laughs> uh, that's- or like Sega? No, no, I have no idea. That's that again. Just want to hear your thoughts. I think, I think, oh God, I don't want to be the asshole who's like, yeah, like horror is so good. And then be like, I wouldn't consider the other ones to be super horror inclined the way that I would consider Silence of the Lambs to be. I don't know why. I just, there's no, when I watch Silence of the Lambs, I know I'm going into something that is going to keep me up for a little bit at night and I'm going to be like feeling some type of way after I watch it. But with the other ones, I think they're great. I think the show is actually more horror than the other than the following films. I am um, Mike. What are your thoughts on the uh, subsequent sequels? I don't really consider Red Dragon to be very horry because right. horry. That's a bad choice of words. Very <laughs> horror like uh, because it's directed by Brett Ratner and and he is you know. Uh, mediocre at best. Hannibal, I actually do consider to be horror. I just don't think it's very good. I mean, the amount of of blood and and stuff that Ridley Scott brings to that movie is definitely horror worthy. I just don't think that movie entirely works. I have to admit, I have not seen Hannibal Rising. Uh, I will also agree, though, that the TV show is brilliant and is really the most worthy sort of successor to Manhunter and Silence of the Lambs. And frankly, what the TV show got away with for being on network television is staggering to me. Oh, it's so good. Briefly say about Hannibal, where Silence of the Lambs really terrified me. Hannibal disturbed me to a point where I have not wanted to rewatch it again. Just the ending. Just I don't even want to get into it. It just it got to me. I saw it in the theater and it was just like, what are we doing? I you're not really yup. You're really going that way. You're really going there. Okay. Okay. He's really going. Instead of, you know, for me, it's always the implied, you know, like we talked about, you know, when like a movie like Seven is so terrifying because it's in your imagination, you know, where they tell you what's happened to these people. And then you have to think about it like, oh, it's terrible. And I'm like, oh, that's so much, always so much worse. And then something like the ending of Hannibal, you're like, oh, you could have just implied that that happened. You didn't actually have to show me that. So I just took it to a level that I don't think I was comfortably prepared for. Yeah, that's a good point. So, but that's again, that's just me. That's just me. All right, Mike, <laughs> what do you got for your second pick? It's actually interesting. We've spent a lot of time talking about Manhunter because that was one of the first movies that I sort of landed on that I wanted to Whoa. talk about. But I decided to go a different direction with Michael Mann because I started thinking about what if we have one of these sort of high fancy horror movies that completely fails to work. Uh, Normally, I try and recommend good movies here, although I've had many people tell me that they don't think The Wraith is good, to which I say they are incorrect. Um, Nonetheless, I I wanted to kind of talk about one that doesn't work. Uh, And it's based, it's a Michael Mann movie based on one of my favorite books uh, by F. Paul Wilson. And so my second recommendation is actually going to be 1983's The Keep. Uh, Have either of you seen The Keep? No. You know, I'm a big, big fan of the Blank Check podcast. 
podcast. And by the way, interesting that we're talking about this because they're in the middle of a uh, Jonathan Demi retrospective right now. And their, their episode on Silence of the Lambs is excellent. And I strongly recommend it. They're actually the reason I haven't watched The Keep because they did a Michael Mann filmography. And just after after listening to that episode, I said, I just, I don't think I want to sit through this just yet. I mean, I'm going to watch it, but with as limited as my time is, I didn't make it priorities, but I'm familiar with the movie. So here's what's interesting about it is, yeah, it, it doesn't work at all. Um, and there's a couple, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, it was a, a very, first of all, it's very early in Michael Mann's career. So he hadn't quite said he was still at the stage where he was a lot more concerned about style than kind of combining style and substance. Uh, so this movie is all style, no substance whatsoever, but the style is through the roof. It's possibly his most stylistic and almost kind of fever dreamish uh, movie in his entire career. But part of the problem was it was an incredibly long shoot. It went way over budget. He turned in a director's cut that was almost four hours long and Paramount went not only no, but hell no. So they took it away from him, cut it way down, cut it all the way down to 96 minutes to where it makes next to no sense. Uh, For those who haven't seen it, the plot basically involves this castle in Romania that has been occupied by the Nazis during World War II, uh, and they end up unleashing a a entity called Molasar, who uh, is basically not the devil, but essentially an ancient being. And a professor played by Ian McKellen and his daughter played by Alberta Watson are essentially taken by the Nazis, kidnapped by the Nazis to help research this. At the same time, in another part of the world, another sort of person, entity by the name of Glaken, played by the almighty Scott Glenn, starts journeying towards the keep because he and Mollus are basically uh, immortal enemies. It's The book is just all sorts of kick-ass. It's awesome. The movie could have been, but again, it's such a mess. But what's interesting is when you watch it, there is so much talent still on display that it, it is the type of bad movie that can only be made by incredibly talented people which is why I, which is why I think it's still worth a recommendation and why I'm recommending it because I think people should still Dana I think you should still take the hour and a half and check it out because it isn't just a run of the mill bad movie I actually have kind of an affinity for it because there is so much talent on display in this movie there's just stuff that you're not going to see in your run of the mill bad or even mediocre movie there is it's so michael mann i can't even describe it so um i really do recommend people check it out you're not gonna love it in fact you're probably gonna think it doesn't work but i still think it's a movie that everybody should see i think you found your next theme yeah no i think you're right that's that's... that don't work that are made by incredibly talented people No, I think I think that's brilliant. I think that no, that's brilliant. So listen, we're just going to lock you down for that episode. So we'll we'll set up we'll set up we'll, we'll figure out which one it is, and and you're you we'll just we'll just keep the conversation going. You know you know when when you explain when you I mean I heard basically that sort of ex- explanation through blank check and and you know to hear you explain it you know it just it makes sense that yes I will commit to watching it. I can tell you that. Yeah, I will say right now, and we'll talk about this when we tell people where to find things. It periodically shows up on Amazon and Netflix. Uh, right now, you can only 
pay to rent it. I, I wouldn't recommend paying to rent it. Wait until it shows up on Amazon or Netflix and you can stream it for, you know, essentially free because uh, I think it's worth seeing, but it's not worth paying a ton of money for. Let's just put it that way. All right. So, Allie, what's your third pick? So my third pick is one of my favorites of all time. I'm taking it way back in Michael's way back machine. I might pronounce it incorrectly because I'm not German, but Hoxon, Witchcraft Through the Ages, is my third pick because I think that the production of that film is insane for being 1928 or 1929. I can't remember right now. And I feel like if that movie were made today, people would still think it was incredibly well done. There's some imagery in that film that like, I close my eyes at night and I can't sleep for the next few hours because it, it's like just burn into my skull, particularly the devil in that movie. Oh my God. It's, it's breathtaking. It's honestly a little overwhelming right now because I don't think I've ever seen a movie that beautiful in terms of, you know, imagery anyway. And I think that the fact that it was made so early on in horror's history is very telling. And I think there's a lot to be found in that film throughout the rest of the genre's history. And there's just so much influence that that film has kind of imparted on some of my favorite films. I can't not talk about it. I'm going to be the one who said, I've never heard of it. That's just me. And I, I like no this. No way. No, I'm, I'm being honest. No, that's fine. I, you definitely should watch it. It's in the Criterion Collection. And it's, I mean, so it's silent, which I know is not everybody's jam, but there are versions of it that are narrated and I think it's worth checking out. I might be pronouncing it incorrectly, and that's why you think you haven't heard it. But <laughs> it's definitely one of my favorite movies of all time, and I think everyone should watch it. I think that one you should rent for money if you haven't seen it. Okay. Mike? So it's actually funny. When you mentioned to me, Dana, that that both what the theme was and that Allie was going to be our guest star, I was like, you know what? I'm betting there's two movies that she's going to recommend. One of them was Romero's Season of the Witch. The other oh. one was this one. Um, and so, I, uh, yeah, I love this movie. I'm glad you recommended this one. Uh, Dana, she's right. It's worth signing up for the Criterion free trial just to watch this one because it is filled with... You know, one of the things I love about silent movies when I try and get people to watch them is it is mind-blowing the scope that some of these movies were able to pull off the the scale that they could do and and this is one of them there is is both imagery and just the scale of some of the scenes that that you see in this movie you can't believe was made in the 20s i mean it it, it rivals what you would see in an avengers movie in terms of of kind of obviously not you know, the same technical level, but just the scale <laughs> and the scope. Uh, I, I, I've seen this movie a half a dozen times. I, I watch it every few years. I think it's absolutely fantastic. It is probably as much as I hate, again, we hate the term, might even be the first elevated one. Yeah. Because it, it certainly is interesting in a lot more than just cheap theatrics and thrills, but also is absolutely terrifying. And you're right. The devil is, that's some nice costume and makeup work insane and i think it also i mean i'm really big on horror as a form of social commentary i don't think there's i mean there probably is so nobody at me on twitter but we all know that horror is kind of like the best vessel by which to express social anxieties right so 
this film I feel like is the first horror film that did that and it ta- it's very feminist too it talks about you know the I'm gonna pronounce this word wrong I need to make it known English was not my first language so I pronounce things incorrectly all the time but is it hysteria or hysteria uh hysteria surrounding women and liberated women and how you know obviously they were deemed witches or whatever it talks about that a lot in the film and I think that's super super ahead of its time and you know what it would make a great double feature with season of the witch and now that's what I'm gonna do tonight so (laughs) (laughs) yeah they I actually watched I had never seen season of the witch I actually watched it last night just in case no Uh, Yeah, I liked it. I thought it was it's 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 actually a Romero movie that I was not very familiar with until you you talked about it a few months ago at some point, and I thought it was spectacularly good. So good. It's not as good as Haxon though. Haxon is no. it it really is, folks. I know silent film for some of you can be a bit of a barrier. I will just simply parrot back what. Bong Joon-ho said a couple weeks ago, which is if you can get over the one-inch barrier that is subtitles, you'll find a lot of great cinema out yep. there. And and this is this is one of them. This this is really a stunning movie, uh, especially at the time it was made. Uh, so I, I think this is an awesome recommendation. Okay, so Mike, I'm going to have you round out the episode with your third and final pick. I also kind of went back again. Uh, I went back to 1954, and I also went really elevated for this for my third recommendation. Elevated as in a 160 meters tall. I am recommending the original 1954 Ishiro Honda Godzilla for my Ooh. third First of all, have either of you seen the original Godzilla? Yes. No. <laughs> I'm sorry, I haven't seen any of your movies, Mike. That's okay. I'm used to it. Dana's never seen any of my movies yes. either. It just this is this podcast is basically just a chance for me to recommend obscure shit to people. That's that's really all it boils down to. You have seen it though, Dana. Yes, I have a few times. Yes, and it, as soon as you said it, I'm like, well, that makes perfect sense because the uh, the subtext of that movie is on a completely different level. Absolutely. Have you seen? The Raymond Burr version or the Japanese version or both? Uh, to best of my knowledge, I've only ever seen the Raymond Burr version. If you could speak to the, what that the difference on that. Sure. Uh, and obviously, I'll get to that. For those who I'm assuming most people are familiar with Godzilla, we just got a mega budget Godzilla movie this year. But the original Godzilla is 100% a horror movie. And like you said, Dana, the, the subtext of that movie is on a whole different level. It is a response to the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Nuclear testing creates... Uh, awakens essentially this ancient monster who proceeds to just destroy Tokyo but there's no other monster for Godzilla to fight there's no uh, you know awesome but cheesy humor this is a bleak nasty essentially cautionary tale on the dangers of super weapons and it is as unsettling and upsetting as any giant monster movie that has ever been made. When it was released in the U.S., there were two. There was a version released where uh, the studio had gone in and actually inserted scenes with Raymond Burr playing a uh, an American reporter. And that is actually the way most people have seen it, because it wasn't until the 2000s that the original Japanese version was readily available here in the West. It's still good, but the original Japanese version is is actually a far stronger movie. The Raymond Burr version feels a little bit more like a typical kaiju giant monster movie, but the original Japanese version is a angry, sad, just horror movie about 
what we as people do to one another. Uh, you know, I don't want to get into too many spoilers, but there is a character who, as they always do in these movies, he creates. There's a lot of discussion about this character who creates a way to destroy Godzilla, but discussion about is it even ethical to do it and should we do it and what would happen if we do it? This is the type of movie that could only be made in Japan in the 50s because there is so much of a response to World War II in this movie. It, if people think all Godzilla is is cheesy and, and funny and tacky, which I love all of that too. I, I ride or die for every Godzilla movie. But if that's all you think it is, please watch this one because it will absolutely change your mind about, about what Godzilla is about. Allie, have you seen any of the Godzilla films? And there's been so plenty of I'm, them. I'm, that is a huge blind spot for me. Anything kaiju is like... The only one I've seen is like the host and that doesn't... Does that even really count though? That 100% counts. That's totally a kaiju movie. <laughs> well, I want to, like, I definitely need to make that not a blind spot because, I mean, hello, I want that box set. It's so pretty. <laughs> so I need to watch them. But no, I haven't seen um, many of them. But, you know, maybe what what time is better than the present? Yeah, no, absolutely. I would like to say that uh, Raymond Burr does reprise his role 30 years later, Mike, correct? Yes, in Godzilla 1984. I remember that. And I could put a, I mean, obviously, this is the 20th Century Movie Club. And, you know, a lot of the Godzilla films, like, I actually have made it a point to try to see as many of them as possible. And they start to border on almost utterly ridiculous when you look at the original film. But if I could make a, if I could just jump into the 21st century and just make a strong recommendation for the 20, I think it's 2016 Shin Godzilla film. Have you seen that one, Mike? Yeah, 2016. I think it's 16 or 17, but either way. Yes, yep. Shin Godzilla, absolutely fantastic. I love that movie. That That's a great thing to bring up, Dana. Allie, keep us updated on the Godzilla ones, please. I, I'm, oh, I'm going to be absolutely. curious because, like, again, like they go really kind of batshit crazy for a little while there. And they kind of go crazy and then they get reeled back in and then they go crazy again. They get reeled back in. And uh, Mike, you mentioned we just had a Godzilla film. I had no interest in seeing it. I'm talking about Godzilla King of the Monsters. No interest to see it. I have not seen it. I'm not planning on seeing it. The trailer gave me CGI anxiety to the point where I wanted to just walk <laughs> out of the theater. Uh, yeah, it's so the the Gareth Edwards 2014 Godzilla is actually rock solid. Yeah. And that that is a solid movie. I agree. Uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters is it, it's bad. Uh, I hate saying that. But and the biggest problem is you said it gives you CGA anxiety. You're correct because you can't see a damn thing in the movie. My I saw it at home. My home theater is calibrated within a half inch of its life. Like I, most theaters, like actual movie theaters can't stand to what I watch at home. And I still couldn't see shit when I watched that movie. It is so <laughs> poorly shot as far as everything is in rain and at night so they can cover up the fact that they probably didn't have the budget they wanted to have to pull off what they had. It's boy, I, I just... I watched that movie and I thought, man, if this is the first Godzilla movie that people are watching, that is just really sad uh, because yeah. I've loved Godzilla my whole life. And you're right, Dana. They What I love about the series is the Japanese ones. There's so much a reflection of what's going on in movies at the time. You know, like we get as as kind of whatever's popular at the time you can track through Godzilla movies because they will show up in Godzilla movies, whether it's sci-fi stuff or serious allegory or whatever, whatever's popular at the time shows up in Godzilla. So all those movies are a really great time capsule, but man, King of the Monsters was rough. That yeah. was a rough 
What we like to do at the end of each episode is let you, the listener, know how you can find the movies that were recommended today. So, Mike, I'll turn it over to you first. Okay, so Night of the Demon is uh, available for rental or purchase at any major uh, retail or any major streaming service. The one thing I will say is make sure that the running time before you rent it is 95 minutes, not 81 minutes. It should be most places are, are doing the actual 95 minute version, but just double check that before you rent the movie. Uh, it's also streaming for free on a website called FlixFling that I'm not familiar with, but it is there. The Keep is available for rental or purchase on most major streaming services. Like I said, though, I would really recommend waiting until it pops up on Netflix or Amazon because it does periodically uh, and you can watch it that way. Godzilla is streaming on the Criterion channel. It's also available for rent or purchase on primarily Amazon. Alex mentioned it. I have it. I do want to also shout out the Criterion Collection Godzilla box set, which is absolutely gorgeous and amazing and incredibly expensive. But if you catch it during the Barnes and Noble 20 or 50% off sale, it's about 110 bucks and it's worth every single penny. Uh, so that is the best way to watch it. But if you if you don't want to spend the money, the Criterion uh, streaming channel is a good way to see it. So, Al, your picks? So, Rosemary's Baby is available to be streamed now on Prime Video and Hulu, which I had no idea. It's such an, it's like not something I would expect to be on Hulu, but it's there. And then you can rent and uh, purchase it on any major streaming service slash, you know, Amazon. And then Silence of the Lambs is available to be streamed on uh, Prime Video also. And you can rent and buy it again, wherever you can rent and buy movies. Then finally... Haksan is streaming on the Criterion channel, which I don't have yet, but I'm really like, I need to gather up samples of surveys and reviews from other people because I don't know if it's worth it, you know, if I'm buying Criterions all the time. And then it's on Canopy, which is cool because as a college student, I get Canopy, so I'm going to go watch that for free, even though I have it. Awesome. And you can rent and buy it um, anywhere, uh, mainly Amazon, Vudu, and iTunes. Okay, Mike, if people want to follow you on social media. I am at Hibachi Justice on Twitter, and I'm also at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd, where you will find our continually updated list of the movies we recommend on the 20th Century Movie Club. I recommend, or I updated a few days, or in some cases, a few weeks after the episode <laughs> drops. So if you want to, you know, if you listen to us and you're like, hey, what movie did they recommend? You can go back and find it. Perfect. All right, Alec, people want to follow you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at sick underscore underscore six six and that's pretty much it you can also follow my instagram if you're interested at sick dot six six and again you can read my stuff on talk film society or you could find my podcast sequels s-e-e-q-u-e-l-s on spotify on uh, the apple podcast app and i think soundcloud so Perfect. Definitely go check that out. We'll have a link to your podcast in this episode's show notes so people can just one click away and, and get listening to it because it's awesome. really good. It's really worth checking out. Oh, so thank you. Yeah, I agree. I love it. Although I do uh, disagree <laughs> with their take on the Universal Soldier sequels. I knew it. I knew it. I knew that would be brought up. <laughs> but other than that, it is a great. It is a great podcast. Everybody should. Check you it. almost got through the whole episode with it out without it coming up. You were so close. I know. Every that is probably our most uh, controversial episode yet. So. That's awesome. Okay, so if you want to follow the show on social media, you can do so on Twitter at Dana Buckler Show. You can follow 
me on Twitter at Dana Buckler. You can follow me on Instagram at the real Dana Buckler. You can follow the show on Instagram at the Dana Buckler Show. You can check out the website, thedanabucklershow.com, and you can always email with questions or comments at thedanabucklershow at gmail.com. So let me just once again say thank you, Allie, for being a guest on the show. It was awesome having you, and I can oh, guarantee this will not be the last time you're on the show. We've already made plans for another episode. <laughs> so, so really, thank you so much for being on here. Thank you for having me i had such a good time i have so many recommendations to get started on now absolutely and mike it's always a pleasure to have you on my friend always buddy my name is dana buckler and thank you so much for listening